Dell TechFest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com deals. Today on Something You Should Know, reruns. Why is it we like to watch old TV shows we've already seen? Then, making a change, like losing weight or changing jobs, why is it so hard? All the famous existential philosophers talked about this thing called the terror of our authorship, this fear of being in charge of our lives. And every time you make even the smallest change, you see that you are the author, you are the person driving that life, and that's scary. Also, spring fever. It turns out to be a real thing with real symptoms. I'll tell you what they are. And the human ability to think critically. Are we losing it? What we've done is we've outsourced our thinking to experts and those with a narrow focus on the area of interest. The result is I think we've lost our ability to think for ourselves. And, uh, you know, what I'm suggesting is we try to get it back. All this today on Something You Should Know. Are you one of those people who just buys things with whatever credit card you grab out of your wallet? Well, that that could be a costly move. NerdWallet, you've heard of NerdWallet. NerdWallet lets you compare credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. So if, for example, you like travel rewards, you can see which credit card gives you better rewards than the credit cards you've got now. Think of what you could do with better rewards. Free flight, room upgrades, who knows? Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and so much more at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. You know, I've always found it interesting how people, human beings, like the familiar, right? We listen to the same music over and over again. I mean, there are plenty of new songs to listen to, but we like familiar music. We like to watch reruns of old TV shows. Netflix is full of movies that you watch that you've probably seen before. When you go out to eat, you probably have ordered the same thing that you ordered last time, even though the menu is full of new items. Well, according to a study in the Journal of Consumer Research, reruns are really good for us. Not only does repeating a favorite experience tap into the good vibes you felt the first time around, you'll also see, hear, or feel some things that you miss the first time around. How many times have you watched a movie the second time and seen things that you completely missed the first time, or listened to a song maybe the tenth time and heard things you hadn't noticed before. Your brain will always find something new to discover when it's taking in a familiar favorite, and that is something you should know.
Change is hard. Everyone knows that. But why is change so hard? Whether it's losing weight or saving more money or whatever the change is that you want to make, you're the one that wants to make it, or you think you want to make it, or you say you want to make it, and yet so often the change doesn't stick. Why? Well, here to shed some light on that and to offer some ways to make change stick is Ross Ellenhorn. He's a sociologist, psychotherapist, and social worker, and he's author of the book, How We Change, and 10 Reasons We Don't. Hi, Ross. It's nice to be here. So there is, I think, a fairly universal experience that people have that they, they identify a change they want to make, they do so because they think it's important, and yet they can't seem to stick with the change. So why? What's, what's going on here? Change always has to do with this uh, very difficult emotion, which is called hope. And hope, when you hope for something, you automatically place value on something that you didn't value as much before you hoped for it. And you also recognize that there is something that you don't have in your life. There's something important to get and something you're lacking. If you think about, you know, when your parents asked you what you want for your birthday and you weren't sure, and the minute you said bike, all of a sudden bike became more important than before you said it. And then you felt like you were a person who lacked a bike in his life. And now you're at a place of risk because if you don't get that bike, you're going to recognize you don't have it. And you're going to recognize that something you made important, you don't get to have. And that's true with all change. If you hope to lose weight, you're placing yourself in a position of now heading towards something that's going to make you feel more disappointed than if you never had headed in that direction anyways. That's what people mean, really, by don't get your hopes up, right? I've always thought that when people can't make a change, whether it's to quit smoking or to lose weight or whether it's to get the the dishes from the sink into the dishwasher, whatever the change is, if you can't seem to make it happen, it's because it isn't that important at that time. You know, when companies coming over then it's easy to make sure the dishes are in the dishwasher because you want to clean up because company's coming over. But if company isn't coming over, well, eh, the dishes can sit in the sink. It's just, it's just not important enough at that time. It might be later, but right now, it's just not that important. That fits in with this model, but it doesn't complete it because the thing can actually be very important to you. But you might be terrified of trying again. You might be, you, it might be so important that you're worried about doing it again and not having it happen. And you're worried about that experience of disappointment in yourself. And that's what, that's what I call a, a concept called fear of hope. It's actually something that we're researching now at Rutgers University. And that is this feeling like I don't want to hope again because I don't want to have this experience of my own incompetence and my own inability to make things happen if the thing doesn't happen. So sometimes something could be so important that it stops us in the tracks. Because it's easier not to try, because if you don't try, you won't fail, and if you don't fail, you didn't, you're not a failure. Right, right. It's a little different than fear of failure. It's fear of this kind of sense that you can't make your life work, right? I can't. It's a very almost existential experience. I am the person driving my life, and I'm not a very good driver. I've been left on this earth to take care of myself, to make sure my life works, and this is another example of where... 
I'm not that good at this event. You know, every time you change is a, is a really kind of profound moment because it's you working on yourself. And in that moment, you're really taking responsibility for yourself in a way that can be scary. All the famous existential philosophers talked about this thing called the, the kind of the terror of our authorship, this fear of being in charge of our lives. And every time you make even the smallest change, you're doing something that makes it so that you see that you are the author. You are the person driving that life. And that's that's scary. Uh, the, the mental health field it, it has this medical term called anxiety. But um, philosophers have been talking about anxiety for years. And anxiety is the thing you feel when you recognize you're in charge. You're alone, and it's up to you to make your life meaningful. So is the, is the goal to... F- feel the fear and do it anyway, or is the goal to get rid of the fear so it's easier to do? My suggestion is that the goal is to um, actually find a way to have some affection for that part of you that's stopping you from changing, to recognize that that part of you is, is really screwing up, but it's doing its job too. It's the same part of you that tells you to wear your seatbelt. It's this careful part of you that's protective. And when it sees something scary, it basically tells you don't go towards it. And if we just hate it, and we're just angry at it, we're actually angry at something that doesn't deserve our anger and it won't get us anywhere because there's reasons why it's holding us back. And if we can understand those reasons and actually appreciate them, then we also know what we're leaving behind when we change. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it makes sense in kind of a theoretical way. But give me a, like, use a real specific example to illustrate what you're talking about. If I start eating better, and my family notices that I start eating better. Then a week from now, when I start eating bad again, they're going to notice that I'm eating bad. And I don't want that feeling of them recognizing that I've tried something and failed at it. Now, if I can recognize that the reason why I keep eating bad is because of that, I can say, yeah, that kind of makes sense. There's Ross doing that thing again where he doesn't want to disappoint people. And it might disappoint them. And I appreciate the fact that that's what's holding me back. But maybe, maybe I should just keep trying. Because that's not really, that's, that's not good, that's not a good enough reason to hold me back. The motivation to change has to come from inside. Yes, it can't be because uh, somebody tells you, you know, you really need to quit smoking or you really need to lose weight. Right. If you don't believe it, if you, or if it's not important, there's no motivation to even try. That's right. So it's got to be important. But it's also, it's all, you've also got to recognize that there was something good in the thing, too. It can't be just, I'm running from this bad thing. Because you were doing it for significant reasons, too. The smoking made you, you know, feel good. It, it made you feel a little lighter in the evening. It gave you some sense of your sort of your own autonomy and independence. And you have to recognize what was good about it in order to move on from it. And too much advice is just basically saying this is bad and dangerous and you're doing something wrong, instead of take a look at what was good in that thing before you give it up. To just say, this is important to me and I'm going to move forward, doesn't typically work. You need to kind of look at what you're leaving behind when you move forward. One of the interesting things I find about change is when people actually make a change. They set a goal, they make a change, they accomplish the goal, and then they fall back. And I guess cigarettes are the best example of that. But I know someone, I know several people, but I'm thinking of someone in particular who, who, who quit cigarettes for a long time, like years, and then went back to smoking. And it was hard for them to quit in the first place, but eventually they went back to smoking. 
And yet that person probably gets a lot, not out of the nicotine, but out of the event of smoking. And if we're only having conversations with that person about the high of the nicotine and not the joy of being with friends and smoking, we're not really having a conversation about the entire thing that they're giving up and that they have to give up to move on. And it becomes a kind of secret, you know? It's yeah. this th th thing that's not discussed. The, the wonderful feeling of solitude a person can have when they're sitting somewhere smoking just by themselves, you know? Um, or the feeling of smoking amongst friends like like your friend. These are these are things that are hard to access without a cigarette and you have to kind of give them up. We live in ways of thinking about people where it's basically we say smoking's bad and something's wrong with you for smoking instead of saying you may have to give up this really great thing. Well, I think part of that feeling of, oh, you're smoking and you're bad, that's bad, is is the fact that smoking has become so unacceptable that so few people smoke compared to several years ago that you're now the outcast. You're the one smoking outside by yourself in front of the building when everybody else is still inside because you're the one who smokes. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and if you were to think in those fields again that I was talking about, the, the things that cause us to, to, to quit and the things that get in the way of us quitting, I think that the stigma of smoking has helped a lot of people quit. People that wanted to before one more thing that made it good was removed. Right. Right. And so people couldn't quit before as easily as they can quit now because there was more in their field, the things around them that made it okay to smoke. And again, that's why we should, shouldn't be thinking about human change as this sort of just individual thing. It's an individual, but it's an individual that's connected to all kinds of, all kinds of strengths, all kinds of things that can move them forward and all kinds of things that are holding them back. We're talking about change today, how people change or how they don't change, and we're talking with Ross Ellenhorn. He's a sociologist, a psychotherapist, and author of the book, How We Change. Always find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or Chardonnay. Or maybe you're more of a whiskey drinker. One of their single-barrel bourbons is sure to please. With a little help from one of their friendly guides, find the perfect bottle that's just right for you. Hosting friends or family and don't have time to shop in-store? No problem. Total Wine & More makes it easy to get everything you need for any occasion with curbside pickup and delivery. But you know what the best thing about shopping at Total Wine & More is? that every bottle comes with the confidence of knowing you just found something amazing. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find, only at Total Wine & More. Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Ask a business owner or manager who's looking to hire someone, and they'll often use the word hope. As in, I hope I find someone good. I hope this person works out. You don't want hope. You want to nail this perfectly, because the right people can make all the difference to your business. No, you don't need hope. You need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I think makes Indeed special is that it's not just names and resumes. It's a system that guides you through the hiring process to help you get the right candidate for the job. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. You just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So Ross, it sometimes seems that when people decide to make a big change in their life, one of the things that makes it so difficult is that in addition to the change itself, they attach this huge importance to it, that I, I've got to do this. If I don't do this, that it, is, it becomes so important that you're, you're almost dooming yourself to fail. Yes, it, it, it's, it's my belief that um, each of us is deep down terrified of one thing, and that is that it's up to us to make our lives as deep and meaningful as possible. That is a terrifying prospect. And every time you try, no one else is going to do it for you. You're exposed as working on that project. And that's terrifying. Most of the time we're hiding from that idea. Most of the time we're, we're trying to fake ourselves out that we don't recognize that we're in charge of making this life work. We don't want to see it. And when you change, you're doing this existentially honest thing, this thing that's saying, yeah, you're the person making this happen. And most of us really don't want to look at that. And so that's the real reason that we kind of have, that we need hope and we need a lot of the other, these, these other things to push us forward towards change. Because always in front of us is this force of having to look at our, or what's called existential accountability, to look at our, our responsibility to make our lives work. And that's terrifying. And that comes up even when you just want to lose weight or even when you want to get the dishes from the sink and the dishwasher. It's you deciding to do it and then you having to recognize that you're actually in charge. Well, there's, there's the, the big picture of wanting to change, of wanting to lose weight and realizing that it's your job to do that. But on a mm-hmm. more granular level, it seems to me, in my experience is, it's a lot easier to actually do the things that get you there if you have accountability to someone else. Yeah. At the point when you're willing to get accountability from somebody else, you're at the place where you're going to change. In other words, things have shifted in those forces that hold you back and push you forward, that you're willing to use somebody to make you accountable, that there is a place in our lives uh, uh, where we are doing the pros and cons of changing. And and that's that's what we call contemplation. And it's at that point where all kinds of things can help you change because you're actually ready to change, including having someone make you accountable, including following advice. 
But sort of the way we're talking here is, you know, people are afraid of, of losing, of trying to lose weight and failing. Well, but if you fail, you can still try again. I mean, it's not, it, it, it's not a one bite at the apple. You, in fact, most people probably have to try multiple times to stop smoking or lose weight or quit drinking or whatever it is they're doing, that, that, that it isn't all or nothing once and you're done. Oh, so let me try again? Yeah, yeah. let me try again. And that felt really bad. And I don't know if I want to have that feeling again. There's a, there's a part of me that just doesn't want to have that feeling again. Now, if you can spend some time looking at that. Oh, so there's a part of me that doesn't want to have that feeling again. Yeah, I get that. I, I kind of love that part of me. I get, I get why I would do that. Doing that is going to more likely get you to change than just telling yourself to pick yourself up from your bootstraps and try again. But to say, I get why I'm staying the same. That's... That's me taking care of myself. It's just that it's doing it's too, too good a job. I got to get going on this other thing. I imagine it's true, uh, and it's certainly been my observation and experience that if you want to make change, that that one at a time is probably better. Like if you decide I'm going to be healthy now and I'm going to run five miles a day and I'm going to eat, you know, a vegan diet and I'm going to do all these things, you're probably not going to do any of them for very long because it's just too much. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Um, accepting where you are right now and not accepting where you are right now, right? That to change means I'm not liking something about me and I'm going to change it. But the only way to change is to have some acceptance of yourself. And so change always brings that up. And when people get frenetic about all kinds of changes at one time, it's because they can't stand that place of there's something about me I got to change. So they go running around trying to find the way to solve this as quick as possible with every mechanism possible because it's just too painful to look that there's a thing in their lives they want to change. But don't you think it's just part of being... It doesn't seem to me there's a human being alive who looks in the mirror and goes, yep, perfect. Nothing to change here. This is (sighs) as good as it's going to get. I think everybody wants to change something. Yeah, everybody wants to change something, and everybody uh, is lives in an environment, at least in the United States, where the message is you should, and then everybody lives in a place of deep guilt and shame that they're not changing that thing. But you know, we're the we're the only animal that that decides to change, and that's different than just changing. That means I'm making a decision about myself, and I'm taking charge of myself, and that's a scary thing. It raises larger issues for us about our own accountability for our lives. So boil this all down for me. If somebody wants to change, what's the advice? The advice is to spend some time contemplating what's good about what they're doing now. What is working in their lives? What is working in staying the same? What do they get out of it? It's also to look at what it is that's scaring them and what are they doing that's protecting them because of that? So a person wants to diet and they're not doing it. To take a look and say, there's a part of me that doesn't want me to be disappointed again in myself. And I'm going to spend some time appreciating that part of me because that's not so bad. That's a part of me that wants to be okay. And, and to do that gives you more chance of actually dieting than to just say, I have to lose weight and I'm a failure if I, die, if I don't do it. 
Well, going into this discussion, I think everybody knew that change is hard, just from their own experience, but now we have some insight as to why that is. My guest has been Ross Ellenhorn. He's a sociologist, psychotherapist, and social worker, and his book is called How We Change and 10 Reasons We Don't. You'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Ross. Yeah, thank you very much. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. So, yeah, sure, the Internet has changed our lives. There's nothing you cannot find, no question you cannot find the answer to on the Internet. But at what cost? Technology makes it very easy not to think for yourself. You don't need to know how to read a map because your GPS will tell you turn by turn how to get there. That's just one example of how we've turned over our thinking to technology and to experts. And it's not necessarily a good thing. Vikram Mancheramani is a global trend watcher. He's a lecturer at Harvard University, and he's author of the book, Think for Yourself. Hey, Vikram, welcome to Something You Should Know. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. So explain what's gone wrong with our thinking, because I, I, I couldn't agree more that people seem to not think so much for themselves anymore. But what happened? Actually, Michael, I think it has to do with this overflowing information overload that we're suffering through. Uh, as many of us live in modern life, we have found that we're getting data and information in volumes that we simply can't digest. Knowledge has moved forward, progress has taken place, and because of this explosion in data and information, we've also seen an, an explosion in choice. The result is we believe there is a correct answer for virtually every choice we make. There is an optimization problem to be solved. We may not have the tools, but you know what? There are some who do. And so what we've done is we've outsourced our thinking to experts and those with a narrow focus on the area of interest at that particular time. The result is, I think, we've sort of lost our ability to think for ourselves. And, uh, you know, what I'm suggesting is we try to get it back. Well, but there does seem to be some logic in 
calling an expert, getting some expert advice. I could think for myself and try to figure out what the plumbing problem is, but I think I'm better off calling a plumber. I'm better off calling a brain surgeon when I need a brain surgeon. So there is a there certainly is a role for experts. That's right. And I, my problem with the lack of thinking, Michael, is not the dependence on experts. We simply can't avoid the use of experts in our lives. That's just not a reality of modern life. What I'm suggesting is the mindless outsourcing of our thinking to experts is really problematic. In fact, I would even go so far as to say the mindless outsourcing of our thinking to experts is as problematic as the blunt dismissal of experts could be. What I'm suggesting is that we mindfully engage experts to extract the value that they offer without giving up our autonomy. And the phrase I use is, it's important for us to keep experts on tap, but not on top. So give me some examples. I, I, th- I think I saw one in the press material about, you know, people who will like follow their GPS into a deserted parking lot because that's what it that's told right. it to do. But, but what are some yeah. other examples of this kind of mindless turning over our thinking? Medicine offers a spectacular domain where people outsource their thinking to particular specialists. And there's not there's nothing wrong with following or taking the advice of an expert doctor or, or even more specialized medical professional, but it's important to keep it in context um, because all of these experts have silos and they have boundaries of their knowledge in terms of where it's applicable. So maybe an example would help illustrate that. Uh, you know, what I can do is describe a situation. You know, imagine this situation, Michael. You go to your cardiologist. And your doctor says, you know, Michael, your your yeah, your cholesterol's been creeping up. I'm not comfortable with it. I think you should get on a statin. So success, your cholesterol goes down. And we've outsourced our thinking and we think we're successful. However, if you take into account that next year you are likely to go see your endocrinologist. And this doctor is going to say, Michael, ah, I'm not comfortable. You, your cholesterol levels, I understand, went down, but now your blood sugar levels are a little bit higher. Actually, there's another problem here. It looks like you're pre-diabetic. And uh-oh, when you're pre-diabetic, you are getting a higher risk of heart attack. Now, it turns out the reason that is the case is because we're crossing silos and we're leaving the boundaries of a cardiologist's focus. So the cardiologist focuses on heart health, but the impact of a statin could be, in many people, to have an impact on your blood sugar levels by interfering with the enzyme that controls insulin. So the the reason I bring this up as an example is we're logical to outsource our thinking to a doctor, but because there are multiple doctors each living in silos, there's only one person who sees the whole, and that's you. And so we need to think for ourselves, ask the questions, connect the dots. And in fact, what I would suggest in these domains where we're overwhelmed with specialized knowledge is to use multiple experts rather than one. Multiple experts with different perspectives and ask them to help you understand a particular action that you're about to take. So, you know, asking an endocrinologist about a statin to lower cholesterol, a lot of them will actually say, well, you know, there is this other side effect that happens. And so that's what I'm suggesting. If, if you are so unfamiliar with all of this, how do you 
even though you see it from a different perspective, how do you make a decision? Uh, you know, I've heard the example of, you know, if you're having back pain and you go to a surgeon, well, guess what he's going to suggest you do? And if you go to a chiropractor, guess what he's going to suggest you do? And you go, but, but who's right? How do you know who's right? That's right. Yeah. So this is where it's really important to feel empowered to ask lots of questions. Uh, and so I actually think to really understand complex, uncertain situations like the one you're describing, where we don't know what's wrong with your back, um, it's really important to get disagreement on the table, to actually get that surgeon's perspective who says, okay, we would we recommend surgery, or to go to the chiropractor who recommends three days a week of an hour, or to go to, uh, I don't know, a, a physiologist who says, actually, it's muscular strength development that we need to do, or to someone who's going to claim it's diet, or someone else who's got medication. Uh, I think it's actually important to get all of those perspectives and to battle them out and then to figure out the questions that give you comfort for your personal situation. So oftentimes there is no one right answer. There may be multiple paths as we figure something out. And having multiple options to choose from allows you to think and take into to own this problem, right? Because like you said, everyone has their own perspective and those perspectives can be biased. You know, Warren Buffett says, never ask a barber if you need a haircut. Uh, of course you do, right? Um, so I think you're right to highlight that there are people that come with existing biases and perspectives. Um, and my argument is every single perspective is biased and incomplete. So what we should try to do is triangulate by using multiple perspectives. Is the inability or the unwillingness to do this, is, is this, you think, a new thing that's getting worse? Or is this just a, a, the human condition and, and we're just looking at it, but it's always been this way? Or where are we on this? Yeah, so I do feel like it's getting worse. Um, and I think part of that has to do with where we started, right? I mean, I think more information, more choices, more overwhelmed. And honestly, it's trying. It takes effort to actually think for yourself. It takes actual concerted, focused expenditure of energy. Um, and it's easier. Look, uh, it's uh, maybe we're lazy in some capacities, but it gets very trying to constantly think for yourself. So I'm okay with the mindless outsourcing in low stakes decision. It's, and I think that's okay, right? You're going to watch a movie tonight. Well, Netflix recommends this. Okay, fine. Like, I mean, do you really need to pull out a spreadsheet and optimize and ask a movie critic or ask three friends or ask, in, no, watch the movie. It's fine. <laughs> right. And so in some situations, outsourcing, your thinking is logical. You're going to go get your car fixed. And you know, the mechanic says, you know, you need an oil change and we're going to change the brakes. Uh, that's another $240 or something. You could go get a second opinion and triangulate, but honestly, the stakes are kind of low. He's going to fix your brakes. You know, if he replaces it a little earlier, okay, well, the cost is high to go get another opinion. Um, so I think it really has to do with also the nature of the problem. Um, but I do think we're becoming more and more accustomed to just listening and doing what we're told. Um, and, and that bothers me. Does this mostly apply to decisions, thinking about decisions? Or I often think, you know, when I was a kid, because we didn't have smartphones, I remembered in my head, I don't know how many people's phone number, because you had to. Nobody yep. remembers phone numbers anymore. Does that fit into what you're talking about? 
A little bit. I mean, that's just also just technology providing a, a tool for memory in this situation. So I don't think of that as much because you could easily, rather than keep it in your phone, you could have written it down in an address book. I mean, I remember having an address book where I would flip through the pages and find someone's name and there's their phone number. So that's more of a memory crutch. I'm talking about, you know, when you use the GPS example that follows you, here's a great example where my senses most people would just follow the GPS. Let's say there's been a snow day and the schools are closed. Uh, you're going to a location that's on the other side of the school um, and you're not 100% sure of the exact address, so you decide to engage your GPS device and you put in the final destination. And it takes you or recommends a route that goes really far out of the way and it goes and, – and mainly because there are sort of dark yellow, maybe even orangish lines indicating traffic near the school. But you know that a school holiday is in effect because of the snowstorm. Do you follow the GPS or do you override it? Most people would just follow the GPS or maybe not most but a lot of people will rather than stopping and thinking, okay, hold on. It thinks there's traffic there based on a historical algorithm that says every Tuesday at 8 a.m. at this time and this way there's traffic. But is there really traffic today? Can I ask that question? Am I allowed to? Uh, et cetera. So there's an example where I would think it's more pertinent than the remembering phone numbers. But that's a good example of people follow the GPS because – most of the time, it's right. And everybody's had that experience where Waze or, or your car GPS takes you to some weird place that, or, or to some long, circuitous route. But most of the time, you can rely on it. And so maybe you put up with... Because I've also had the experience of saying, this doesn't look right, and I've always regretted it. <laughs> yeah, look, I think the, the point I'm getting at I'm okay with letting devices and experts think for you. What I'm not okay with is the blind outsourcing, the mindlessness of it. So I'm okay with you consciously doing what you just said, which is, okay, I might be wrong every now and then, but I'm going to do this because the benefits far outweigh it and I realize I will be derailed every now and then, but um, it's, a, it's a worthwhile thing and I'm choosing to give up my thinking. That's fine. I'm comfortable with that. Do you think that people, the kind of people that you are talking about that, that rely maybe too much on other people and other sources, do they know it? Would they self-identify as that if you asked them? Or do you think we do this, and, but we think, well, he's not talking about me? You know, I think there's a little of both. <laughs> it's a great question because, um, you know, the the it's almost definitional, right? If they're mindlessly doing it, then they're not aware of it. <laughs> uh, and if they're mindlessly doing it, then uh, they may not find it applicable to them to say that they're doing it. But I do find that when you stop and ask yourself the alternatives. So, okay, I did, I'm taking the statin. What if I didn't? Who would I have asked? What possible impacts could it have, et cetera? Um, you know, I think playing devil's advocate with the recommendations that are coming to you by your advisors can actually get you to, to, to either realize that you're mindlessly outsourcing and that there are other ways to view this situation or whether you're mindfully, proactively choosing to outsource your thinking. And that's okay. If I'm listening to you and thinking, boy, I get what this guy's saying. I really, I'm, I'm on board. So what do I do different? What, what, how do you, how do you put your toe in the water here and start doing what you're saying if 
you're not inclined to do it. Sure. So the first thing I suggest is it's absolutely critical to constantly ask questions, particularly of the expert advice of the experts that are giving you advice. And and one of my favorite questions to recommend, very easy to ask, not threatening, um, shouldn't create conflict is, okay, I appreciate this advice. How do you form your opinion? Why do you think this to be true? Why are you recommending this course of action? Um, what is your belief based upon? And I think asking a simple question like that can help unveil some of the assumptions that your advisor may have about the context in which the decision that you're making takes place. Now, they're not malicious, but they're siloed. And when they're siloed, they have a tough time seeing the big picture that you inherently understand. And so by merely asking that simple question, doctor, why do you believe this to be true? And do you think it's based on information that is relevant to me, et cetera, asking a question in a non-threatening way, doing so will help you understand what your option sets are and will also help you understand whether the assumptions made by your expert are relevant and applicable to your context. So so that's really important, and that's an easy, non-threatening way to begin this process. Another thing to do is to ask multiple experts, maybe even in adjacent or other areas. So for instance, would you be willing to ask your dentist about cholesterol and whether you should take a cholesterol-reducing medication? So Listening to that, I have a couple of thoughts I'd like to get you to comment on. First of all, I mean, obviously for big decisions, this is important, but it sounds exhausting to go ask my yep. endocrinologist and my eye doctor about my cholesterol. I, I, I'm not inclined to think that's a good idea. It seems like a waste of time. That, that to do this for every big decision would give you so much information that now you don't know what the hell to do. Sure. No, I understand. And like I said, for high stakes decisions, I would recommend you actually think about this. Um, but when they're lower stakes, or even if there's not enough time, there's a cost to this process. Um, what's the harm in going home and seeking disagreement on your computer? Right? I mean, most people seek confirmatory evidence. I'm saying go seek the disagreement. Find the confirm find the opposite information. It's only when we get disagreement that we can really understand what the situation's about and the trade-offs. And then the the other the other thing is as you describe it, it it sort of sounds like what you're doing is you're pulling in all this information but you you have the perspective of not being in a silo. You see the big picture and you can then make a decision. But even still, I'm going to have a, a bias. I'm going to be leaning one way or the other. I'm going to have my own beliefs. I'm not sure. this objective. I'm not this objective guy who can pull off all this information and go, "Aha, there it is." Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. No. Again, I think it's eminently reasonable to rely on others. Think of yourself as an artist putting together a mosaic. Uh, well, it's critical that you have tiles. It's impossible to put together a mosaic without tiles. So you tap into experts for those tiles and you use them where they are helpful to you. But if it's not helpful to you and an expert may be misdirecting you, maybe you want to go get another expert. Or if you feel like you're not actually being heard or you think it's not pertinent to your context, you know, it reminds me of that um, 
I think it was an Alfred Sloan quote, uh, the former head of General Motors. He said something, I think he went into some meeting and, you know, everyone was in full agreement. And he said, you know, if we're all in agreement on this decision, then, you know, we should take a break and give our to- give ourselves time until the next meeting and give us some time to develop disagreement. Again, I'm paraphrasing. I don't forget. I don't remember the exact uh, quote, but the point was to really understand a complex, uncertain dynamic. You need some of those different perspectives on the table that will likely feel uncomfortable, but when the stakes are high enough, you really want to pursue that path. Well, I think it's a good idea to think a little bit more about how we think or don't think and when we do want to blindly follow advice and when we want to think critically about what our choices are. Vikram Mansharamani has been my guest. He is a lecturer at Harvard and he's author of the book, Think for Yourself. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Vikram. Perfect. Thank you, Michael. Most of us probably think of spring fever as a state of mind or perhaps something that doesn't really even exist at all. But there's more to it than that, according to Dr. John Abramowitz, a professor at the University of North Carolina. He says there are some very real symptoms to spring fever. They can include daydreaming, falling in love, and an overwhelming urge to be outside. That's because nice weather signals the brain to secrete endorphins, triggering a strong feeling of well-being. There is no known cure for spring fever, uh, and you may not want to take it even if there was one. And some people are more at risk than others. If you think you may have spring fever, don't ignore it. Make an appointment with Mother Nature. Your body is probably trying to tell you it could use a change of scenery, some fresh air, and some vitamin D. And that is something you should know. The best way our audience grows is when people like you share it with someone they know. So, please do. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. No matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax experts make them count. Did you maybe buy a second property to rent out? That's a move. Did you go back to school to get your degree? That, too, is a move. A smart move. Did you commute to work across state lines? You see, that's a move. Did you relocate for a fresh start? Well, that's the definition of a move. Maybe you moved into a house boat instead of a house house. Or perhaps you crushed it in the stock market in 2023. TurboTax experts make all your moves count. Getting you every credit and deduction you deserve, filing with 100% accuracy, and getting your max refund guaranteed. Switch to TurboTax, make your moves, and they will make them count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. Yay! The Hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, what, is it real? (laughs) (laughs) In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What Women Binge, wherever you listen.